say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Today on Feminine Roadmap, I am speaking to Dr. Mesh Siebel. We are going to be talking about the estrogen fix and the estrogen window. This is the podcast you've been waiting for, ladies. Stay tuned. Hello, Feminine Roadmappers. This is Gina coming to you on a gorgeous Monday morning. And today, my guest is Dr. Mesh Siebel. He is the author of Estrogen Fix and The Estrogen Window, as well as 20 other books. He is faculty at Harvard Medical School. He speaks on women's wellness and menopause, and his goal is to help women be healthy, happy, and hormonally balanced. And how many of us would desperately love just to be hormonally balanced? So Dr. Mesh, thank you so much for joining me today. It's my pleasure to be here. Now, I found you and immediately knew that your message and your mission was exactly what my tribe needed to hear. My very first question is, what was it that set you on the path to helping women and speaking on the midlife challenges of perimenopause, menopause, and all things midlife? Well, I had a very uh, personal situation that entered into this uh, arena. When I began my uh, medical career, it was in the area of uh, reproduction, and I was one of the first people to do test tube babies or in vitro fertilization in the United States. I helped many, many, many women in that arena. I even helped gorillas get pregnant at the zoo. But what happened was uh, a study came out in 2002 that said that hormones were implicated in causing an increased risk of breast cancer and heart disease and other uh, conditions that were worrisome to women. And of course, that was called the Women's Health Initiative or the WHI. And then what ended up happening is, is that about seven months after that, my wife had surgery that threw her into early menopause. And as a result of that, her doctors were really reluctant to give her hormones, even though that she was somebody who was in early menopause and really was suffering from those symptoms. And so I transitioned at that time. I say I used to do sperm to term, and now I do womb to tomb. (laughs) I transitioned into really focusing on menopause because I felt that I had to figure it out so that Sharon wouldn't have to tough it out. And I think that in my travels around the country and in helping over 10,000 women in this area, I know that there are women all over the country who are toughing it out because there's a lot of confusion, a lot of fear, a lot of concern about hormones. And I think if you understand the actual information that's correct and put it in context, you'll find that the majority of women will benefit from hormone therapy and that the benefits far outweigh the risks. 
Nothing is for everyone, and I'm not saying everyone should be on it. I'm not saying that at all. But for the majority of women, it will be an option that they should be able to, to consider and talk about with their healthcare provider. And I got in it from that very personal point of view. Wow. And is that what caused you to write the estrogen fix and the estrogen window? Oh, absolutely. Because in those books, what I really do is say, explain how it got so wrong. How could the number one pill, it was the estrogen in the form of Premarin at that time, was the number one prescribed medication in the entire United States. And it went from being something that everyone seemed to be getting to something that was almost like Russian roulette. In other words, you knew it would be helpful, but you feared it would be harmful. And so you had to decide, you know, do I feel lucky, you know, Dirty Harry? Because it was that kind of a situation, which is really uh, regrettable. And the fact of the matter is the harm that was done by that. We can, you know, talk about that in much more detail. But the harm by that is it impacted the lives of a generation of women in this country to their detriment. And it harmed their health. It harmed their relationships. It harmed their work and their productivity, and it really harmed their overall well-being. And I think it's time to change that message and get it right. Now, you talk about an estrogen window, and that, if I understand correctly, is a point in time in a woman's life where it's the best time Uh to take estrogen. Can you please explain what the estrogen window is and also What form of estrogen are we actually talking about? Well, let me explain first why it was wrong what they got, and then the window will become very obvious after that. The original study in 2002 that came out was a product of wanting to prove once and for all that hormones were actually good for women because it turned out that up until the late 1990s, early 2000s, Hormones were believed to be very helpful for the heart. And not only were OBGYNs giving them out, but also most internists were giving out hormones to women because it was heart healthy. And what happened was the study that came out was to say, well, you know, we have this information. It looks like it's very good, but it's never been, quote, proven against a placebo. Let's see if it's really better. And so the problem was, is that estrogen in this study became a victim of its success because when they went to find women to get in the study, everybody was already on it. So they couldn't find women who were normally in exit, you know, just entering menopause in their 50s and were, you know, in need of hormones. So they ended up enlisting primarily women who were in their 60s and 70s, even though the study ranged from 50 to 79 years old women, 75% of the women were in their 60s and their 70s. And those women were compared to the placebo group who were just coming into menopause and didn't take anything, and they were in their 50s. And to make it even worse, the women who were in their 60s and 70s were supposed to be well women. But it turns out that many of them were smokers, They were overweight, they had high blood pressure, and they had diabetes, 
So now we're comparing a group of women who are overweight, smokers, diabetic, and uh, who are hypertensive, all risk factors for health issues, comparing them taking a hormone to a group of women in their 50s who are healthy. So I mean, who do you expect to have you know, more problems? And that is what happened. But what it turns out is that when they took the women who were of the same age in their 50s and they superimposed everybody. So now we're talking about medicine or no medicine, everyone's the same age in their 50s. It turns out that almost all the problems went away. And it turns out that the estrogen window for purposes of this study is really the issue of the age range between 50 and 59 so that women begin uh, their treat, begin treatment in that window of time. Now, if a woman goes into menopause early, because up to five to 10% of women will be in menopause before age 45, 1% before age 40, and their symptoms are gonna start up to a decade before that. So there's a lot of women running around who are in their late 30s or early 40s, and suddenly they have hot flashes, they have brain fog, they have uh, bloating, they have difficulty with the sensitive bladder, their libido is, you know, not what it used to be, and other symptoms of those kinds who think they have, because of their brain fog, they think they're having dementia, which is a very scary thing for many women. They think because of their mood swings, they have depression or anxiety, which they may have, but not as an entity. It's part of perimenopause. They think that they have a sensitive bladder, so they go there to go see a, a gynecologist or urogynecologist. They think that they have a problem with their uh, libido, and maybe they see a sex therapist. But really, all of these things are catching them off guard because it's early and they're not really understanding that they are entering into menopause. So if women go into menopause early, they must begin their hormone therapy early. And so their estrogen window opens with menopause, even if menopause is at 28 or 30 or 31 or whenever it is, their menopause, their estrogen window opens way back then and it continues until the time of at least the natural age of menopause, which in the United States about age 51. Hmm. And is what actually constitutes um, a good estrogen? For example, we've heard of the Premarin and there, the what I understood was it was from a mare's urine, right? Is that yes, a preg pregnant mare's urine is a contracted word, Premarin. Aha. Uh -huh. And if I understand correctly, that's what a lot of the naysayers were saying made it ineffective. Well, they were, they were naysayers. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you know, people found it offensive that it was pregnant mare's uh, urine. And some people found it offensive that the horses, the conditions in which the horses were maintained in pregnancy and so forth. But the actual... Um, the actual pregnant mare serum or the, pre the Premarin, uh, which comes from the pregnant mare serum, is actually a, an incredibly well-tested hormone. I mean, there are mi millions, tens of millions of women who've been on it. We have more information on that than just about any uh, other of the hormones because 
it's been around since 1942 and it's been studied intensively around the world. But uh, really, the, there are different kinds of estrogens. Um, we could talk about that. There are, uh, the premarin is one called conjugated estrogens. Conjugated estrogen is really an estrogen. It's like a conjugated word has two things in it or more. A conjugated estrogen has more than one estrogen in it. So the, the actual premarin has a well over 200 estrogens in it that combine together to have this impact in terms of the benefits seen in terms of symptom relief, in terms of hormone and uh, hormone therapy for women who are symptomatic in midlife. But the uh, other kinds, there are, there, uh, but you could say that it comes, people like to say that they don't like the Premarin, but in fact, it is a natural hormone because it have what's more natural than pee pee. You know, it's, right. it's coming directly from a source, a living thing, and it's a, it is natural. And then from there, you know, it's extracted and it's made into these pills. Now, then there are bioidentical hormones, which are the other ones that people think about as natural. But in fact, there's nothing natural about bioidentical. In fact, the only plant that the bioidentical comes from is a chemical plant. So that no matter whether it starts out in a sweet potato or it starts out in whatever source of hormone that it comes from, they're all synthesized because the body doesn't have the capacity to take plant precursors. We don't possess the enzymes to convert them into usable hormones. So they all are not, none of them are natural, but they are bioidentical. And what that means is that the structure, the old chicken wire chemistry structure that we know from high school chemistry is identical to what the body makes. And typically there are three main ones. There are many, many, many more, but there are estradiol, which is the dominant one. There's estrone or E1, which is the uh, highly abundant, but much weaker. And there is triol or estriol. Those are the three, three ones. And estriol is primarily from the placenta. It's primarily a hormone of pregnancy. But those are the three, quote, bioidentical ones. Now, when you go into a compounding pharmacy, or whether you go into your chain store drugstore, whether it's Eckerd or Rite Aid or CVS or whichever is close to you, whichever one it is, and you get a bioidentical hormone, you're getting the same hormone, exactly identically the same hormone, whether you get it compounded or whether you get it in uh, one, of the, you know, one of the chain stores. The difference is, is that the FDA regulates the ones that are in the chain stores, but they do not regulate the ones that are in the compounding pharmacies. And so that puts it at a disadvantage because while the prescriptions can be made up accurately, they don't always come out as prescribed. And I'll mention this because there was a very important study if about three or four years ago in which they took the same prescription and they gave it to 12 compounding pharmacies. And they had them fill the prescription and mail it to a chemical plant that analyzes professionally what's in a substance. In other words, you give them a substance and they'll say there's so much of this in it, and there's so much of that in it, so it's chemical analysis. 
And what they found is, number one, is that when they did this at the chain store, at the uh, compounding pharmacies, none of them had the same amount in them, even though they were the same amount of the same prescription ordered. And what they found was that in general, the estrogen levels tended to be between 80 and 200% more estrogen than what was prescribed. And the progesterone turned out to be between 60 and 80% less than what was prescribed. And the consequence of that is that the body of the women receiving it was relatively receiving a higher amount of estrogen relative to the progesterone. And the consequences of that is that we're starting to see roughly uh, one, two, three, four cases coming in the literature each year of uterine cancer from compounding estrogen uh, prescriptions. And so we, if you're going to take a compounded estrogen, I'm not saying it's bad at all, it's the same medicine, but to be sure you get the right amounts, you have to at least have the lining of the uterus checked. If you have a uterus, make sure that you're getting you know, the correct amounts. We do not see that with the, with the chain store, drugstore prescriptions. And this is important because today, because the belief that's been perpetuated is that the compounded pharmacy is more natural, it's not. It's safer, it's not. But on the other hand, there are about one in three women on hormone therapy that are getting their hormones through uh, compounding pharmacies. Now, I have patients who I use compounding pharmacies for. I have nothing against compounding pharmacies, but one has to accept that you need more monitoring if that's the case. You can't just get it and go. You've got to be checked for your levels and to see that your uterine lining is not too thick and you're not at risk for uterine cancer. Okay. What is the relationship between estrogen and progesterone? And I do know that there's a group of people that really say don't take any estrogen and only take progesterone. So can you please shed some light on your perspective and your experience on the relationship between the two and what really is the, I guess, the healthiest path to take? Well... Let's think about what estrogen and progesterone do in the body and why you would take either of them or both of them or one of them. In a natural setting, you know, when a girl is uh, born, she has all of her eggs in her ovaries she's ever going to have, but they're dormant. And then as she gets towards puberty, that dormancy starts to come alive hormones start to be developed and you start to have all these issues of irregular periods. You start to have breasts that develop. You start to have moods. You start to think about sex. You start to have different kinds of changes in your body. Your hips get more curvy and so forth. And then somewhere in a year or two of the body kind of sputtering along, trying to get the hormones into balance, you enter your quote, adulthood time where estrogen and progesterone are now produced at adult levels, which are going to be for the rest of your reproductive life. So during that reproductive window of some 35 years or so, estrogen is produced basically all month long, less in the first two weeks of the cycle and more in the second two weeks of the cycle. 
Progesterone is produced virtually non-existently in the first two weeks of the cycle, but in the second two weeks of the cycle, it rises up to high levels. The reason that it happens like that is because estrogen is causing the lining of the uterus to prepare to receive a fertilized egg. And so the estrogen uh, thickens the uterine lining and the progesterone comes right after the estrogen starts to go up and then takes that uterine lining and compacts it down and makes it a perfect milieu for the implanting egg. So the two together are what balances the uh, uterine lining. And then as you get in perimenopause, all that happened in puberty happens again, but backwards. And all the changes in mood and all the changes in thoughts and all the changes in body start to uncouple and then eventually periods stop. So both hormones have a role in balance. And if you have a person who has postpartum depression or they have PMS that's really symptomatic, they know exactly what it's like when your hormones are out of whack and what that can do to your brain and your mood and your joy in life. I mean, it really has an impact, which is, can be quite profound. And as a result, the goal is to keep those levels constant to each other when they get out of whack, it's like figure skaters that are paired and then they don't, suddenly they are no longer, you know, dancing to the same music and they run into each other. One falls down, they both fall down and things go poorly. And so the goal is to have them both and to have them balanced. Now, if you don't have a uterus, you do not need progesterone because the purpose of the progesterone, it's progestation, that's what it means, pro-pregnancy. It's also preparing the lining of the uterus, but without the need to protect the uterine lining, because without progesterone, if you get only estrogen, you don't compact the uterine lining, and the lining will keep building up and building up and building up, and over a decade or more can, learn, can turn into precancerous cells. And that's what the pro progesterone protects against. It's the progesterone against the uterus, against the buildup of estrogen's uh, lining that keeps it all safe. And so uh, what happens is that you don't need the progesterone, absolutely. The estrogen has a much more beneficial effect in terms of uh, the brain, in terms of the bone, in bone health, maintaining the bone structure, in terms of um, the skin, for instance, keeping the skin from losing uh, the subcutaneous tissue. And in other words, when you see your, uh, if you notice skin changes after menopause, you start to see the crow's feet that can happen. You start to see the creases in one's face. What this is, is a loss of the tissue underneath the skin, the subcutaneous tissue that's actually kind of making a scaffolding to keep the skin stretched out so that it stays smooth. And then it's really an indirect indication of what's happening in your bones because you're losing the same kind of 
of infrastructure to the bones is what's happening in the skin. And, and the same thing happens in teeth. Women lose their teeth after menopause because what are teeth? They are bones. And so the loss of estrogen has an impact potentially on the health of, our, of teeth. And at the estrogen is helpful in terms of the bladder, in terms of maintaining the lining of the bladder, the tissues that support the bladder, and protecting it from sensitivity to having to go off and from the coughing and sneezing that comes with uh, aging sometimes. It's not all estrogen related, but it certainly benefits from estrogen. And uh, the, even the bacteria in the intestine are affected by estrogen because the estrogen lives and encourages the right kinds of bacteria in the gut. The gut in turn is also what digests the bacteria. This is how the body is very interactive and there's a lot going on. Progesterone does have some benefits for sleep and has some positive effects on bone. Uh, but avoiding estrogen only to the you know, to take progesterone physiologically doesn't make a lot of sense. Estrogen also is very helpful in preventing plaque formation. So it helps to prevent the buildup of hardening of the arteries in women, especially if it's continued immediately after menopause starts. So when we're talking about menopause symptoms, I think most women are very familiar with the whole irritability and hot flashes. What are some more maybe lesser known symptoms that could let a woman know that things are changing? Well, I would say that you know what's normal for you. You know what your mood should be. You know what's typical for you. You kind of know where you feel in balance. And I think that if you start to feel off balance uh, emotionally, that could be a clue. The common symptoms emotionally of menopause are really the most common are anxiety and sadness. Hmm. There's a certain level of just angst and just edginess. That's very common. Uh, sadness, not necessarily depression, which is a clinical diagnosis of two weeks of continuous sadness. Uh, that is, um, that's more common. Women who are uh, with a history of, of uh, postpartum depression, people who have had a clinical depression are particularly more risk for depression than women who don't have those histories. Um, then you start to get the brain fog, you get cognitive changes. I mean, women, even in spite of how challenging it is, do not lose their intellect. They do, however, lose some ability to remember. And so that's temporary for the most part. The big fear I hear over and over is I'm afraid I'm going into dementia. And since about 70% of people over 70 are going to have dementia, we're talking about a huge problem in our country, and almost everyone has a mother, an aunt, or somebody they love who has dementia. And so the second you can't remember where the car is parked, the second you keep forgetting to pick up the kids, the second you know that all these things happen. I had one lady who 
was a patient of mine. She was very doing very well in her work, but she was finding more difficulty, you know, just remembering stuff and doing stuff. And finally, she spent so much effort. She put together this whole report. They were depending on her for this big project report. She did the whole project, which was a huge effort for her. And then she got up in the morning and was driving to work, and she realized she forgot to submit it. You know, forgot to turn it in. It was just, just devastating for her. So there are many stories. If you are a person who has an underlying mental health condition, maybe it's OCD, maybe it is a panic disorder, and menopause hits and suddenly nothing is working, well, could be what's off is you're hitting menopause. And many of the times I spent uh, six years helping women in the psychiatric department who were having, you know, different kinds of major mental health issues, and they would come in with their mental health issues, and suddenly the, the talk therapy wasn't working, the medical therapy wasn't working, nothing was working, and things were looking kind of bad. And where I would start often, if they were in menopause, perimenopause is working on those symptoms, and once you get those under control, things, kind of the boat lights itself, writes itself up again. So, we, you know, if it doesn't seem right, one of the first things to think about is could it be hormonal and could that hormonal thing be perimenopause? So it's really having women be educated on their own sense of wellness and their own sense of wholeness and what that looks like. What's normal for me? If it's normal for me and now I'm not feeling that way, may, this would be one of the things to consider that's happening. Now, I have heard that you, we are a thumbprint of our mothers. Is that still, hold, does that still hold true that you can kind of, if your mom went through it a certain way at a certain time, that you could generally assume that yours would be similar? Or is that just something that they used to say that's no longer technically uh, true because maybe our environments have changed and other things have affected it? Well, as Mark Twain said, all generalizations aren't accurate, including this one. <laughs> so I would say that what is true about our moms is that a mother and her daughter will tend to go through menopause roughly the same time. That's a general statement that is generally true. In terms of how mom acted and how you may behave or how you experience it, that might not be the same because your environmental response to stresses and things might be very different. Your coping skills may be different. What is socially acceptable at the time or in your uh, social environment may be different. But when, that's pretty constant. You authored a book called The Estrogen Fix. Mm -hmm. Can you give me a synopsis of what The Estrogen Fix is and how does that relate to the estrogen window are you are you talking kind of about the same thing and more in depth it's an update of the and a little bit of an expansion on the estrogen window the estrogen window it was very important to, for me that explained to women that there is a window of time where they can begin estrogen with the greatest degree of safety and the least amount of risk and that if they do that, most of all the fears and, and uh, concerns about breast cancer and heart disease uh, go away. Because as I mentioned earlier, if you start 
hormone therapy in the pro in the appropriate time frame, you actually will not increase your risk. If there's any, it, there's there's two kinds of women. There's the one that have a uterus and the ones that don't for purposes of hormone therapy. Women who have a uterus, as we've talked about, have to take two things, estrogen plus progesterone, or some type of equivalent to that. And in those situations, there is a very minimal potential risk of breast cancer. The risk increase is about the same as, as if you were to drink a glass of wine a day. It is less than if you had dense breasts naturally. So it, is, it, it exists as a very slim edge of a risk. On the other hand, if you have no uterus and you take estrogen only, the risk of estrogen causing breast cancer is 23% lower than if you took a placebo, so that you're actually at a lower risk of getting breast cancer or heart disease. And so, the fix is just to realize that there is that the window is to, to underscore there is a time frame to begin where maximum safety occurs and benefits are greater than risk by far. The fix is simply to focus on the fact that there are some beneficial effects that come out of taking hormone therapy that people can be aware of. I mean, if you are on hormone therapy, even in the original studies that were done so poorly, when they followed the women out for 18 years after the study stopped, the women who took hormones, any kind of hormone, whether it was estrogen plus Provera or they took estrogen alone, lived on average about two years longer than the women who did not take hormones. Hmm. So even in that poorly done study, the women lived longer. They had less diabetes. They had less colon cancer. They had less osteoporosis they basically were healthier. So that's what the fixed part is about. Again, if you can't or won't take hormones, I'm not here to tell anybody they must or else it's all over. There are alternatives. And I, would, and I talk about those in the book too. And certainly when I do my coaching of women at menopausecoaching.com, when I have a certain number of people that I help that are live too far away to see me in my office, I offer them what works for them because as I tell every person I ever interact with, everything works for somebody and nothing works for everybody. That's a good rule of thumb. Yes. You have to be open and just try one thing and another. You can't do three things at once and figure anything out. But if you have a systematic approach to go through things, you can come up with something to help your symptoms and really make this a much more positive experience. As I said, my goal is to make, help women achieve health, happiness, and hormonal balance. What is a reasonable amount of time to give something a shot? So you're saying give it a reasonable amount of time. So if I'm going to try, let's say, an estrogen-progesterone combination, for example, What's a reasonable amount of time to see if that's really working for me? And how do, you, how do you measure that? I would say that on average, I try to give people two to three months with whatever I'm trying, and then I try something else. Okay. And do you get your hormones measured somehow? Is there a test that, that goes along with that so we know whether the hormones are 
balancing or is it just an external kind of measure about how we're feeling and what the symptoms are doing? I think if you want to have an objective criteria, you would measure hormones until you got to a level of where you're going to stay with that treatment. And then you would consider measuring occasionally or infrequently, but it's in the transition that you have to know what you're doing. I mean, in a perfect world, if I could get a blood test from somebody and I knew where their hormones were when they were happy and felt good, I would just give them till they match that, more or less. But the fact of the matter is, is that the hormone replacement actually ends up with hormone levels that are generally a little lower than women had when they were in the peak of their reproductive years, for instance. So they can actually be quite comfortable and incredibly happy with lower levels than might have even been normal for them many years past. Okay. I was just going to ask you, you know, how often or if ever you even could have that original measure. So you're kind of playing with, um, because you don't know necessarily what normal was, right? Now we just know we don't feel good and we need a doctor to help us find normal again. Right. But, you know, you can certainly get a lot of information by how a person feels. Yes. Secondly, you can get information implied by what are normal ranges. Uh, third, you can get information by how that person is doing by measuring, for instance, a hormone called FSH or follicle-stimulating hormone. It's a, it's a pituitary hormone that makes the ovary make estrogen. And so as you give the person estrogen, that FSH will go lower. So you, there's a balance there. So you can measure those together. You can check the uterine lining, you know, with ultrasounds or sampling the tissues to make sure that, the, that there's not too much hormone for the body in a place that it could be potentially harmful. I mean, you have to look at, I try to take care of the some of you and not just some of you. I mean, we have to look at you as a whole entity. You're not just a hot flash. There's a whole bunch of you, you know, that needs to be aspects of you that have to be considered. And I think when you go to be taken care of, that you want to have someone looking at you as the sum of you because you just can't focus on one thing. I mean, you have to look at your lifestyle and what you're eating and what you're sleeping and how much your stress you're under and what kind of exercise you're getting. All of that's part of your story because it will affect how much everything else you need. Do you have any like just general things that you would want women to know about foods maybe that are supportive or not supportive? You know, liquids sure. like are you caffeine or soy and things like that? Well, caffeine is typically a trigger for hot flashes. Alcohol can be a trigger for hot flashes. Things like spicy foods uh, can be a trigger for hot flashes. Uh, there are a lot of things you can just, as you experience your day and what you routinely eat, you might notice that suddenly you feel hot after you eat certain foods. You stay away from those for the most part. The things that are healthy are healthy for menopause or healthy for everything. The, they are to eat mostly a plant-based diet. You try to get about half of your plate filled with basically 
uh, veggies and fruit. And ideally, in a perfect world, if cost weren't the factor, I would go definitely for organic because you get rid of the pesticides. Because part of what happens, there's so much pesticide that goes in, for instance, the Roundup now that there's so much talking about. The reason it's problematic, in addition to any potential carcinogenic issues, is that the way the Roundup works is, and many other pesticides, but Roundup will pick on for a minute because it's known to do this, it gets into the bacteria and the, the, or the bugs that are eating the plants that you're trying to grow, and then it causes their digestive tracts basically to, it messes up their digestive tracts. And so what ends up happening is when we eat the plants that have the Roundup and it gets into our intestines, then we're eating stuff that's messing up our intestinal tracts. And this causes inflammation and leakiness of the contents into the abdomen and causes a lot of inflammation and trouble. It's also killing off some of the bacteria that naturally digest the hormones that we are taking. So... What do people eat? I would say try to be plant-based, try to eat mostly fruits and vegetables for half. I would try to eat a limited amount of meat, and I would eat in order. I would eat less meat, a little bit more chicken. I would eat a little bit more fish. I would eat like soy and beans and things like that. The more, those are the healthiest in descending order. And then, you know, a quarter is the carbs and a quarter is that protein. So that's the best thing. What you want to avoid is a lot of sugar. You want to avoid processed foods, anything that's packaged. Uh, those are the kinds of things to stay away from. Cigarettes are terrible. If nobody told you that, you've just heard it here, newsflash. But it causes menopause to come sooner. And uh, it's really uh, very bad for hot flashes in particular. So, uh those are the, the simple the simple things, and the more that you can stick with plant-based food and eat meat maybe a few times a month, eat chicken more commonly than that, eat fish more commonly than that, and then I think people do well. With like your raw nuts and seeds as well? I think that raw nuts and seeds are good depending on how much fat you want to have. Walnuts have a lot of Fat, so kind of a low-fat snack with a walnuts, basically two walnuts. No oh, goodness. <laughs> you, can, you eat two walnuts or you eat like uh, six almonds or you eat 13 pistachios. Uh, these are about the numbers for a low-fat kind of a, a snack, but nuts are, are great. As far as brain foods go, how supportive are your your brain foods like nuts, avocados, and things like that, your omega-3s in supporting uh, going through menopause well? I think they're, they're all very good foods. And, you know, the omega-3s are particularly good for brain. I mean, they're good for brain. They're good for heart. They're great for bones. But, I, I mean, um, I just can't emphasize enough the, the stuff of not staying with whole, whole fresh foods is the main benefit. Things that are helpful too, I mean, people are eating things that include like uh, medium chain triglycerides or MCT. You may be hearing more about that because it's easily digested and you don't have to cleave it to get it to your brain. It can add some calories to the brain. And um, for those who do take hormones, a lot of the 
estrogen maintains the blood uh, vasculature well in the brain. It also increases serotonin in the brain, which helps to uplift mood because all these antidepressants or serotonin reuptake inhibitors, you're basically increasing your serotonin. It increases transmission time of nerve impulses so that people can react faster. So hormones are very useful, but but eating whole foods and also exercise is very uh, help, helpful too, trying to get 20 or 30 minutes a day, at least five days a week is uh, another. That helps lower the risk of breast cancer. It fights off depression. It's good for your heart. There's a lot of benefit to exercise. I think exercise too has a great role to play in how we feel mentally, like our mental health as well. Sure. You can get enough exercise in to actually get endorphins going and to give yourself a, a personal high that way. So there's a lot of a lot of good from these very basic things. I mean, the four pillars for me are get enough sleep, eat healthy, get enough exercise, and lower your stress. And those are all things that will be complemented in terms of your menopause experience, but also just the quality of your life in general. I was going to ask you about stress. We all, I think, understand that stress is one of those very dangerous things when we stay in stress too long. If we don't learn how to manage our own emotions and what we're thinking and how we're feeling. Um, This may be an obvious question, but what is the role that stress plays in menopause and uh, managing that? What tools do you suggest? Well, stress is a major player in our whole society today. If you just look at the news, it's hard to watch the news and not feel stressed. And this, I've often thought there should just be a good news station. You know, just let's, let's just say somebody did something nice today and we want to really highlight it. You know, there's a lot of good people doing a lot of good things that never gets talked about. But stress has a, an undermining value in terms of uh, it, it precipitates hot flashes. It certainly can make it harder to go to sleep if you're completely consumed with all the things that are happening in one's world. Um, stress increases the risk of heart disease. It, there's really nothing good that stress does if it's chronic. I mean, short term, if you have to get up and give a talk or you know, you're about to do an athletic event or you have some performance thing you have to do. A little bit of butterflies and a little bit of stress may keep you focused. <laughs> but um, if you are in a situation where you are constantly putting out these stress hormones, then it's just to one's detriment. I think stress probably is responsible for as many doctor's visits as most of the chronic illnesses uh, that are out there. It's a terrible side effect of our society today. There's a lot that people can do to lower stress. I mean, one is to keep your plate no more full than you can handle. I mean, just say no occasionally if there's things you can't do. That's a simple thing. Uh, The second is to not hang out with people that don't make you happy. I mean, you got to pick your posse. And if you choose people that make you feel good, then generally you will feel good. And, you, you know, you become who you hang out with. So if you're dealing with people who are negative or just a pain in the ass, frankly, I would just stay away from them. 
And, you know, you can, even if they're in your family, you can finesse that enough where it's an infrequent kind of a thing. Uh, I would say that uh, exercise is a good stress buster, but, you know, most of us live in what I call run-on sentences. We never pause for anything. So there has to be some timeouts. We have to have pauses between the things that are keeping us uh, under the under the thumb of next, next, next. I would say that learning how to do um, meditation is very helpful. There are a number of apps that are available that you can get on your phone. I use one called Insight Timer. It's a free app. There are, there are many of them. But, you know, I listen to it maybe twice a day. It takes me 10 minutes twice a day, and it just kind of resets me in the somewhere in the mid-morning or somewhere in the late afternoon. There are things that you can do that you enjoy. I mean, make time for things you enjoy. If you like it, play an instrument, make time to play an instrument. If you like to garden, make time to garden. If you like to dance, have timeouts that you dance. Uh, whatever it is that, you know, makes you happy, there should be time for that in your life so that it balances out all the times where you have to deal with things in a stressful uh, kind of a way. And I mean, there's just no end to it. And if it's unbearable, then you should get someone to help you with your stress and deal with it. Not necessarily with medication, but someone that you can talk to. Friends are certainly helpful. And having some sense of gratitude, go to bed at night and write three things you're grateful for instead of listening to the news because you tend to dream about the things that are last on your mind. So if you're happy about something and you're grateful for it, that gratitude will follow you through the evening. And when you get up, you may have a renewed kind of refreshness that you wouldn't have if you were dealing with uh, what's happening all around us. I love the way that you consider the whole person, because I feel like in our go, go, go society, like, that you just explained. It's so easy for us to look for that quick fix. Everyone wants the pill. Yeah. And so it's fantastic to have this holistic approach and really recognize what I would say is like that mind, body, and spirit. There's more than one thing happening. And when we take into context how we're living, how we're eating, how we're thinking, and how all of that is affecting our physical body, as well as where we're at on the timeline in life, <laughs> right. what our bodies are doing and how they're changing. Now, this might be along the same lines, but I have heard that men have a similar hormonal shift in their bodies. Is that true? And, and how does that look for them? Well, men have menopause, just like women have have a menopause, but uh, there's a big difference. And the main difference is, is that men don't have periods, so there's not that anatomical distinction, so you know that you've segued from one into another. And when women hit menopause, they no longer produce eggs, whereas men may continue to have sperm production beyond their really optimal reproductive years. So those are some differences. But in men, androgens do uh, the male hormone. I mean, women have 
mostly estrogen, but of course they have some androgens or quote male hormones. And male have androgens, mostly male hormones, but of course men have estrogen too, but just the dominance is towards one or the other. So in men, in that time of life, androgen levels do drop. There's also, depending on the individual, there can be more weight gain, there can be more depression, there can be more breast tissue development, there can be bigger bellies, there can be some of the, uh, some similar ways in terms of body changes and uh, moods, behaviors, and so forth that are sort of a parallel, not exactly the same thing, but shadowing the same thing. In men, it happens a little bit later than in women in general, but these changes occur and men are certainly advised to get the same emotional support to continue to get the exercise and get other kinds of nutritional inputs and so forth that anybody at midlife should be happening because it's part of the aging process. And as we get older, our options are basically to do what we can to stay well or to have a, a more risk of having chronic ailments that affect people as they do get older. And the trick in my mind from Midlife is to just continue healthy habits from younger life and to keep doing them every day. You can't cram for life. You've got to have habits that you use on an ongoing way so that the time between your final sort of loss of your vitality and death is the shortest possible distance so that you're functional, alive, and vital the longest period of time. And that applies if you're a man or a woman. And I think that that's what we want to do is develop habits for life that sustain us and nurture us and allow us to both be productive and satisfied and, and, and helpful to the loved ones that we care about. The reason I asked that question is because I think as women, we can be very hyper-focused on the journey that is menopause and how different it is. And if we can maybe be aware that men are having their own journey, it might actually be beneficial in our marriages to be aware too. That was my thought. You know, I think it's, I think it's a good thought. The other, the other side of that coin is, is that if you look today at the consequences of the women's health initiative, a study was in the new England journal just a couple of years ago, but they looked at how many women, how have things changed as a result of the women's health initiative? Well, they've changed a lot. There are 80% fewer women taking hormones today than there were in 2002, 80% less. Mm. Most of the reason for that is the women are afraid or they're confused. And the secondary reason for that is their doctors are afraid or confused. And the reason for that is because since there are 80% fewer women in menopause are taking hormone, not in menopause, but being treated for menopause or hormone replacement, then what ends up happening is the doctors in training for the last 20 years have had only 20% the volume of women to learn from and to treat in terms of hormonal symptoms or treatments. As a consequence, they also are inadequately prepared. And that is what the conclusion was not of me, but of the New England Journal of Medicine, that the doctors of the recent generation are inadequately prepared, whether they're primary care or OBGYNs, for the most part, in hormonal treatment and management. So they don't have 
the skill sets that they should. And yet menopause will happen to every woman who lives long enough. And so there's a great opportunity societally, and that's part of what I'm doing at uh, Beth Israel Hospital at Harvard Medical School is training residents and students and whoever will listen to me when they, as much as I can talk about it, about these things because they don't get to focus on this. You know, they're so, they're, there's a lot to learn about in medicine. Uh, so these sort of bread and butter basic things are not necessarily center of focus, which they, they do need to be, should be. Mm -hmm. Is there kind of a, I guess, a directory of people out there, you know, like homeopathics have their directory and naturopaths uh -huh. have theirs for, for something like this, for if a woman is looking for a doctor who is maybe more aware, more educated on what you're sharing with us, is there some kind of a resource out there like that? The North American Menopause Society has a category called uh, uh, NAMS or North American Menopause, NAMS Certified Menopause Practitioner. I mean, I took a special test and board exam for menopause practice, but they have on their website uh, uh, a listing by cities where people have taken uh, that training. But I think it's important that you get to someone who is knowledgeable. Otherwise, what will happen is they'll reinforce your fears and confusion. And that happens all the time. I, I had a person who I saw was a woman who actually wanted to have hormone therapy. She went to her doctor at a major medical center, I'll keep unnamed, and the, was a young doctor. And she said, I'd like to get hormone therapy. She said, well, I'm not going to give you hormone therapy. And she said, well, why not? And she says, well, I don't want to read your name in an obituary. And I said, well, well that's not exactly uh, an open discussion here. You know, so, and this was someone, quote, well-trained, but, you know, still under the, the misguided information that the old stuff was accurate. And this is the problem around the country. When I was speaking about the estrogen fix around the country as part of my book tour, I went, I went literally around the country. I went all, all over. And I had talks, and I, there were always a group of women who would be, you know, 45 to 55. That would be the typical audience for the most part. And they were just trying to get information and be sure that they had this right. But then there would be always a subgroup, about 20% of the audience, there would be women that would be in their 70s. And so I would ask, you know, it seems to me that you might be through most of menopause. Are you, why are you here to this talk? Is there something in particular that you want to gain so I can help you or address your issues? Because they clearly were like a little bit different age group than the other women. And so they would say, well, yeah, I want to know if I want to be sure about hormones because I've been taking them ever since I went through menopause and I feel great, but my daughter's afraid of them. And I just want to make sure I got this right. So here's there's moms they are in their seventies and they're still trying to figure out how to help their daughters know what to do. I thought it was just the, the essence of moms trying to be moms and never giving up trying to help their kids doing what they do. But it was always a group, you know, a small, about 20% of the audience would always be this group of women who looked very calm and very, you know, content, and they looked very healthy, and they simply wanted to be sure they weren't saying something wrong to their daughters. Wow. 
And they would have been the group before the shift. Yes, they were before, let's just say before the shift hit the fan. (laughs) (laughs) Now, I understand that um, you have the menopausecoaching.com. So Uh if women wanted to reach out to you and ask you questions, I know you are limited in the people that you can coach. Is that the best place for someone to address a question? Or do you have a contact me on your website? What's the best place if women have a question for you? Well, on, um, on my website, it's drdrmache.com. And there's a contact. So there is a contact on drmache.com, drmache.com. We do have, I do have for a limited number of women, I, I do um, offer coaching for through menopausecoaching.com. And if people want to have a great resource that's very useful to them, uh, they can go to get my magazine, which we put out. We make it available free so that everyone can have it. And it's called hotyearsmag.com, hotyearsmag.com. And um, if you want to know how bad your symptoms are in menopause, and you want to just get a quick and dirty, how bad are my symptoms affecting my life? They can go to menopausequiz.com. It's an awful lot of URLs. I don't know if people can remember so many, but menopausequiz.com. Uh, they can take a two-minute quiz and get information about feedback about where they are. Excellent. Well, I will be putting all of these resources in the show notes hyperlinked so if women are interested they can just go and hyperlink from there so i will make sure and i do know that your books are sold on amazon yeah they're sold all over the place but amazon is generally gets the is the beast of where most of the books are bought today and and they uh, they are there People like them. And if you buy that book and you find it helpful, put a review because it encourages other women to realize. Because unfortunately, there are books on Amazon that actually that are still selling. The author's been dead for over a decade, and the information is just plain wrong. And it's, they're still selling on menopause, and people are under the perception that that's good information, and it isn't. And how do we even know that the information is good? That's the challenge. Well, I guess you have to, re- you know, identify the sources where the information you believe will be accurate. I mean, that's always the due diligence we do in all of our information getting. And with anything medical, we always have some sort of progress happening too. So maybe really being able to check what has come out since that book has been published, you know, find keeping our finger on the pulse of what's going on. And as a woman, we have a lot on our plate. And so having a resource like you, Dr. Mesh, and books that are current and empowering ourselves with an education on these things so that we are not a slave to fear. And we're not just hearing the sound bites around the world because we're so inundated with information. Right, because in my book, the last chapter is how to talk with your doctor. See, I think the most important thing in the, you know, we don't get long with the doctor anymore. I mean, the amount of time we spent here in talking exceeds by far anything that would happen in a typical, in any uh, office visit setting. 
And the, the fact is, is that it's important today that women become a partner in their health care. They have to really bring to the table certain information because you're dealing in a setting where there are misinformation still going around. There's also biases that you have to overcome. And you have to really have some sense of what it is you want. And, and I'm not saying that you need to take care of yourself. That's not fair. But to be part of the decision and to be part of the, to be part of the decision, you have to be empowered with information. And that's, that's what you need. And that's, that's what I want to impart to as many people as I can. I do know you have videos on YouTube. I got a chance to look at those. And your website is a resource. We also have that menopause quiz. We have your Hot Years magazine and your menopause coaching. Are there any other resources? Those are a lot. Not that those are not enough. but have I, I think been- that'll keep people busy for quite a while. I've got a couple hundred YouTube videos, plus the magazine has been around for several years. We have the new, you know, always new ones, but there's the, the old issues. And just get invested in yourself. I mean, who can you invest in better than yourself? Yeah. And to try and, you know, get the information that you need to stay well and to stay healthy and happy and, and harmonically balanced. Awesome. I want to thank you so much, Dr. Mesh, for reaching out and for agreeing to be a guest on my show. I'm telling you this information, I really am looking forward to women getting it because it is literally life-changing to have good, right information about our health. Well, it's my pleasure. Thank you very much. You have been listening to Dr. Mesh Siebel, award-winning physician, women's wellness and menopause speaker, and author of The Estrogen Fix and The Estrogen Window. I want to encourage you to head on over to www.feminineroadmap.com slash episode 072 to access all of the great resources that he has shared with us today. You can also add your name and email address there to join my tribe. I have a wonderful free gift for you. And if you have not done so already, please head over to iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, and Podbean, any of those platforms. And if you could rate, comment, and share my podcast, the more women we can give this life-giving information to. As always, I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart for all of your support, for grabbing a cup of something wonderful every week and joining me for these girlfriend conversations, empowering us to live healthier, happier, more whole lives. So I want to encourage you, do more, be more, get out there and get after it, my friends, and take charge of your health and your life. Until next week, take care. Bye-bye. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.